0: It's good to see them go. That's a good class. How many of you love the Word of God? I was meeting with our radio producer today. We were talking about strategy and whatnot, and I said, I have one desire, and I believe I have one call: That call is that our church first minister the word here, but then that we take the word, as it is, uncompromised, undiluted, to the nation, because it is under such attack. And we want to clearly declare who Jesus is, who God is, what the Bible says about salvation, heaven, hell, life, death, truth, falsehood. We want to take it. And we're strategizing to take it to more and more. And so that's why we're going through the Bible here on Wednesday nights. Because the more we know, the more victory we're going to have. Do you know that? Say with me, you shall know the truth. And it'll make you free. And he who the Son frees is truly free. Isn't that good? And Jesus said, your word is truth. And so the word that we're about to look at tonight is truth. And we're going to learn to walk with God. So let's pray together. Father, thank you for the book of Philippians. Thank you for the epistle of joy. Thank you for the joy of the Lord, which is our strength. And we pray that you will minister joy, unspeakable and full of glory, more and more and more. This will be a church known for its joy. Now would you breathe a prayer and say, Lord, speak to me tonight and increase my joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell them, joy unspeakable. Amen. Amen. Christians are supposed to have joy. God did not baptize us in pickle juice. He did not come to make life miserable. Sin is what makes life miserable, sin and its consequences. But God doesn't make your life miserable. Not the real God, not the Bible God. Jesus said, My joy I give to you, and my peace I give to you. So if we're connected to Him through Jesus Christ, we ought to have peace. We ought to have joy. Amen. You really should. Christians ought to be laughing, happy people because of joy. Now, we want to look tonight at he who began a good work in you. And that's a great, this is one of my favorite passages. But last time we saw that the Philippian church was birthed like so many of them in the New Testament in the fires of persecution. Paul's subsequent letter to the fledgling church is known as his epistle of joy. And church, I want you to know That according to the Bible, we ought to be a joyous people. Some of you need to inform your faith that it's even capable of smiling. Okay. Now, the key verse of Philippians is, let's read it together. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Let's try that again. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Wow. Now, the key word in Philippians is rejoice. And the very first time that joy is mentioned is found in verses 3 and 4 in the first chapter. Paul said, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making request for you all with joy. When Paul prayed, it was with joy. It wasn't a duty that he had to perform for God, but he had joy in his prayer life. Now, in verse 6, we hear of Paul's confidence in the ongoing work of Christ in them. Religion is man's attempt to reach God. Religion is do. Christianity is done. Religion is us trying to reach God through our very best efforts. Christianity is God reaching us. There's a huge difference. So if you're in religion, then you've got your own self as your own project. You are your project. But if you're God's through Christ, you're his project. And he began a good work in you. Now let's read this together. I love this passage. Ready? Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. God began it, God's going to finish it. Now, when you read Philippians, you see that Paul could see plenty of proof that the Philippians were soundly saved. It showed. You cannot be saved and it not show. Their outward good works were evidence of the inward good work begun in their hearts by the Holy Spirit. Now, Good works don't save us, but good works prove we're saved. Good works do not save us, but good works will follow salvation. I got saved, then I started ministering to people, reaching out to people, doing things that were right and good. First came the horse, then the cart. Okay? So good works don't get you saved, never can, never could, never will. They can't do it. But if you're truly born again... You're going to begin to manifest good works. They prove that you've had a genuine salvation experience. Now, the word perform says God will perform what He has begun, means He's going to finish it, bring it through to an end. Because we are His workmanship, Ephesians says, created in Christ Jesus for good works. So we first become His workmanship. And that leads to good works that we were destined to be involved in. That's the way that it works. Now, essentially, Paul is saying that the work of the Holy Spirit uh, that he started of forming you into Christ's likeness, he's going to finish it, continue it, keep on doing it until the rapture of the church. You may not be aware of it, but every single day, the Holy Spirit is working inside of you, He really is and forming you, teaching you, speaking to you, leading you, guiding you, illuminating you, separating you from the world, drawing you closer to him. It happens every single day. We may fail, and we often do, but he never does. He never does, and he never quits. Aren't you glad he hadn't quit on you? Because you would have quit on you And other people might, would have quit on you. As a matter of fact, probably. But God never says, I quit when it comes to you and me. That gives me confidence. And that's why Paul said, I'm so confident of this very thing. He who began a good work in you, he's going to keep on working until either we're raptured or go to the grave and our body is resurrected later. But his work is going to continue. Now, Paul next applauds them for their fearlessness. Now, these Philippians, as did all the churches, they really loved the Apostle Paul. Look at verse 7. Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. We're in this grace boat together. And I tell all of you all the time, and I really mean it, it's not just rhetoric, that together we're reaching thousands and really hundreds of thousands of people every day. Together we're doing it. Because you're a partaker with me of the ministry of grace. We're all in the same boat. The boat of grace. Thank God it's not the boat of good works. Thank God it's not the boat of a cult. Thank God it's not the boat of sin, but it's the boat of grace. And that boat floats. Now anyone who showed Paul the hand of friendship and sympathy might soon share his chains and his cross. It was very dangerous to side with Paul in those days. You had to really want to be his friend. Because if you sided with him, you may end up where he was. The Philippians paid no heed to the danger, and they boldly stood by their apostle. They did not back down because he lived on dangerous ground in the natural. And it was bravery, indeed, for the Caesars were not known to be tolerant towards those suspected of acts of treason by declaring a king greater than Caesar. And that's just what Paul's message was. We will not worship Caesar because we worship a greater king than Caesar. This is why the early church was persecuted, martyred, experienced all kinds of bloodshed, heartache, and pain, because they refused to honor Caesar as God. So they came into all kinds of persecution for it. Now, Paul was chief among them, and his message was very clear. We will not bow to Caesar. Our only king is Christ, and they could not stand that he preached a king other than Caesar. So If you did that, life and liberty were always at stake. Could you possibly believe that it could end up that way in America? Has it even occurred to you what's going on in this country right now? Can I be a little bold right now and and just forthright? The Obama presidency has now declared that insurance companies must provide abortion-inducing contraceptives that, that are paid for by tax dollars, your tax dollars and mine. So, essentially, we are being made complicit in the abortion mill. Now, I want to predict something to you. See, we used to read verses like this and go, well, wow, that was terrible back there, and, but we're in America. America's changing, friend. And I'm not here to scare you, but I am here to tell you the truth. It's changing. And I've now read this last week several nationally known pastors saying, I will go to jail before I will involve myself in that. I could name their names and you would know them. It doesn't matter because now the rubber is meeting the road and things are changing. Whereas the message used to be pro-choice. You can choose your way and I can choose my way and... We're not ever going to get along, but at least we can choose our way. But now, Bible-believing, conservative Christians who adhere to the Scriptures and believe that abortion is murder of a child and that life begins at conception are being forced by our government through our tax dollars to support abortion, to be involved in it if that's not lifted we're going to be in a very different country and the the game is about to change if that's not lifted it reaches a place where you say you know what i can blink at a few things and i can endure a few things but there's a line in the sand over which i cannot cross and i used to wonder what that would be well i believe this is one issue that could cause serious, serious issues in this country, especially with Christians. The Catholic Church has already risen up. I don't agree with the Catholics and all their doctrine, but I do take my hat off to the fact that they have always stuck with their convictions about abortion. And now they're being told they must involve themselves. We're being told we must involve ourselves and be complicit in it. Well, where is the line going to be drawn? Well, that's the line. That's one of them. What's going to happen? I don't know but that needs to be lifted and we need to pray about that heavily or we're going to see this country experience some turmoil we have not seen since the Civil War now in Paul's day the line in the sand was worshipping Caesar he said we can do a lot of things we cannot worship Caesar and so that was the line over which they could not cross. And they give up their lives and they give up their liberty, they give up their families, they give up their jobs, their reputations, whatever they had to do to take that stand. Not only did the apostle thank them for their fearlessness, but he also thanked them for their friendship. For God, he says in verse 8, is my witness. How greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. Paul was such a lover of people. He gets a bad rap in our day. I, I tell you, the more I study these letters written by Paul, the Holy Ghost using him to write these letters, the more I just am so impressed with this great apostle. I know I say it a lot. I'm going to say it again. Greatest Christian that ever lived. No doubt about it. This man, Paul. I'm not lifting him up. I'm just saying such was the work of God in his life. I believe is the greatest Christian that ever lived and he loved people. He says, I, I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. Now as he sat in the Roman prison from which he wrote this letter, Paul was separated from the people that he loved. His heart was to see his dear friends again. He missed them. He longed for the warmth and welcome of Lydia's home, for the hearty embrace of the jailer and his family, all of whom he led to christ he missed them he said i'm longing for you i wish i weren't here in jail because i really want to see you i believe if he had been free to follow his heart he would have said timothy pack the bags we're going to philippi i want to see those folks greatly i long for you paul said and i believe a wave of nostalgia swept his soul as he wrote that he loved people he was not out for fame fortune money nothing he loved people now here's the lesson for us sometimes we must be very patient with God regarding the desires of our heart can I tell you that just because you've got a desire and it hasn't been met yet doesn't mean that God's not hearing you doesn't mean that he doesn't care it doesn't mean that he's shelf you somewhere Paul longed with his inner guts to see these people, but he was in prison and he couldn't. And he had to trust God. It was not always, uh, it will not always go the way we wish when we're walking with God in regards to our, our desires. We must trust him. Listen, trust him, his timing, and his ultimate will. God has a timing for every desire if the desire is of God he has a timing for it. There's a timer attached to it. And it's going to go off in God's time, in God's moment. But in the meantime, Paul said, here I am. I can't do anything about it. So I trust God. We're going to talk about that more here at the end. So now we have the prisoner and his prayer. What was he praying for these people? Can you agree with me that whatever he prayed for them, he prayed for us? That that whatever he prayed for them is also God's will for us? Can you agree with that? So let's look at what he prayed for them. Verse 9, can you read this with me? And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. He said, I want you to have increasing love. I just don't want you to have dumb love. How many of you have ever been afflicted with dumb love? You know what I'm talking about? You you love somebody and you do dumb things because you love them. Or you don't exercise wisdom in your love towards them. We can do this with children. We can do this with people we're dating. We can do this with spouses. We can do this anywhere and everywhere, but it's dumb love. You know what Paul is saying? Love ain't dumb. That is God's love. First, we see him praying for love without limit. Isn't it interesting that Paul's primary concern was their love for each other? Not their power, not their money, not their fame not for a building, or freedom, or opportunities, but that their love would grow, love without limits, that it would abound. He wants us growing in love. Now let me ask you a million dollar question today. Does the Church of Jesus Christ need to grow in love? (laughs) Yeah, I think so. I mean, there's some churches you can walk in, you skate to your seat, it's so cold in there. And I don't mean physically. I mean, there's no love. Nobody greets you. Nobody says hello. There's no love. God wants us growing in love. Now, John told us that God is love. He doesn't just love. He is love, so he loves. He is love, so he loves us. God so loved the world. He couldn't help himself. He gave his only begotten son. The best that he had. Now, that being so, shouldn't we as god's offspring exhibit love above and beyond a depraved and lost world jesus said your righteousness ought to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and pharisees your love your knowledge your wisdom your walk your character ought to exceed that of the scribes and pharisees now the word knowledge he said i want you to love but i want you to love with knowledge Is from a Greek word meaning precise knowledge. Knowledge acquired by experience. The result of learning. How many of you have experienced dumb love and when you experienced dumb love, you learned some lessons? So now you can love, but it's not dumb anymore. You've learned there's a difference between dumb love and love with knowledge. Doesn't take very many heartbreaks, very much pain very many bad experiences for you to go, you know what, next time I really fall and I really love some person, I'm going to mix it with knowledge. I'm going to be smart with it. I'm not going to do stupid things and walk in dumb love because those that walk in dumb love end up burned. Now, the word for judgment, he said not just with knowledge, but I want you to love with judgment. And that means perception or discernment it occurs only here only in this one verse in all of scripture the idea is that god's love operates within the limits of wise experience and careful discernment god loves us but he does not love us with dumb love now god's love is not foolish a parent who loves his child in knowledge and in judgment will not indulge his every wish nor will he withhold his rebuke and discipline from him or her. Will he? Because if you withhold discipline and let them have whatever they want, that's dumb love. God wants us to have love mixed with knowledge and discernment. Okay? Now, likewise, God's love will always do what is truly best for those he loves. Now, not only does he want us walking in love that is smart, knowledge, and discerning, knowledgeable and discerning, but Paul also had a great desire for the Philippians to be sound in their doctrine of Christ. This is one of my great burdens as a pastor, this right here. Doctrine sounds so dry, so dead, so boring, but you know what? Doctrine will save your soul. I mean, we've got to know not just who we believe in, but what we believe based on who we believe in. Now, look what he says in verse 10. I want you, he says, this is my prayer. He's still praying for them. I want you to approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. Now, notice the word approve and the word excellent and the word sincere. Because I'm going to pull them out of this passage. The word approve literally means to examine something or to test something, and it's used regarding testing metals for purity. Paul says, don't walk in dumb love, and I want you to be of the mindset that you test what comes in front of you. He's encouraging them to carefully examine what passes before their eyes, claiming to be of God. Has anybody in here noticed with me that a whole lot of things in our day pass before our eyes claiming to be of God and from God, and they aren't? He said, he's talking about the word discernment. We know it as discernment. Discernment is you look at something and you see past the facade, past the lie, past the deception, and you see something for what it really is. That's discernment. And it's a spiritual gift. One of the, one of the nine gifts is discernment of spirits. Little, little maiden, that little damsel girl following along behind the apostle Paul as they're preaching the gospel in Philippi. This is what got them in all their trouble in the first place. And she's saying, these men are from the most high God. They're telling you the truth. But something inside of Paul said, that is not the Holy Ghost talking. She was saying all the right things. If you look at what she said, there's nothing wrong with what she said. But it was her spirit. It was another spirit speaking through her. And he discerned it. And he turned around and said, in the name of Jesus, come out of her. And a demon spirit came out. How did he know it was a demon spirit? Discerning of spirits. He saw through it. Now, the word excellent means things that differ. Now, let's go back to the passage here. Look at it. You may approve, discern, discern, The things that are excellent. So let's go to this excellent. Things that differ. So we as Christians are to examine or test things that differ. We're to test things that differ. Now what does that mean? Well, doctrine, for example, is among the things that differ. Because there's good doctrine and bad doctrine. They differ. There's right doctrine and bad doctrine. There's there's true doctrine and false doctrine. And they differ. Paul recognized, for instance, serious cultic errors creeping into some of the churches and exposed them in his letters. He discerned between things that differed. He was able to distinguish between the good and the bad. Now, God wants us to discriminate not just between good and bad and right and wrong and true and false, but he also wants us to discriminate between the good and the best because the good and the best differ they differ. In other words, there's a difference between something good and something best. And folks, we've got to realize there is a good and there is a best. As somebody once said, the good is the worst enemy of the best. I don't know about you, but life is short and then you die. I want the best while I'm alive. I want the best. That means I want God's highest purpose for me. I don't want the good. I want what's best. I want his highest. Don't you? And and so I think we can sometimes get a spirit of settle for. You know what a spirit of settle for is? I really don't want to fight the fight, so I'm going to settle for. I really don't want to see this thing through, so I'm just going to settle for. Well, you know, I'm probably never going to do any better, so I'm just going to settle for. God says, no, i got a best for you. And if you'll just hang tough and believe me and fight a little spiritual fight, I'll carry you through to the best, but I want you to learn to discern between what is good and best. Test things, Paul advised. Run what comes before you claiming to be of God through the sifter of His Word. Don't mistake a person's charisma for God's anointing. In America, we worship charisma. We worship talent. We worship giftedness, but you know what? None of those things are anointing. Charisma and talent are natural gifts. Anointing comes from God, but we'll see somebody with a little bit of charisma, and we and we go, oh, they're anointed. You better test it. You better discern it, because anointed people lead people astray all the time. Pray for clarity. Don't get in a hurry. Wait for God to confirm His will. I'm telling you, this this is coming from the Father heart in me, which comes from the Father heart of God. If you were my children, I would say to you listen, pray for clarity before you make a major decision. Don't you get in a hurry. Wait for God to confirm His will. Say, Lord, show me if this is good or best. Show me if this is right or wrong. Help me to discern the true nature of this thing. The Bible promises God will never upbraid you for asking for wisdom. He never, ever will. Now, Jesus warned that in the last days, many false Christs and false prophets are going to appear and deceive, if possible, even the very elect. How could that happen? How could the very elect be deceived? It's easy. When God's people fail to examine and test them that differ. I believe one of the great tragedies of today's church is a woeful lack of discernment. The unwillingness or lack of understanding how to test and examine what comes before us claiming to be of God. There's all kinds of things that parade in front of us today that claim to be of God, that with time and prayer you realize that's not of God. Too often we don't test teaching or a person's character and lifestyle. Look beyond that charisma and find out how a person lives. Or their claims to having heard from God. God help us to come into line with Paul's prayer that we would discern things that differ. Anybody say amen? Amen. We are also, says Paul, to be sincere. Everybody say sincere. Now, you think that means honest. That's not what it means. And without offense, the word sincere means this, to be tested by the sunlight or of unmixed substance. Now, let me tell you what it means. Let me take you back, give you a little history, a little bit of background. In Paul's day, if an unscrupulous sculptor carved too deeply into the marble, uh, he would put wax into the cut to hide his mistake. So he's sculpting, and and he knows he's going to sell this sculpture, and he's cutting away on this marble, and he goes too deep. He goes, oops, I didn't want that there. But he looks around, he gets a candle, pours a little wax into it, smooths it over, and moves on with his work. He would put wax in the cut to hide it. Now, since the wax looked like marble, the craftsman could deceive his customer until the statue was tested by the Mediterranean sun. And guess what happened? You get this statue, you're home, you're excited, you set it up, there's this beautiful statue, let's say it's an angel with wings. And all of a sudden, as the sun rises, you see drip, 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 drip. (laughs) And you realize, I've been had, because look at that gash in that beautiful statue that I paid for. The hot sun would melt it and the customer would discover it's too late too late to get my money back it was a mixed substance when god says i want you to be sincere he doesn't want us to be of mixed substance he doesn't want us to have wax so wise customers back in paul's day learned to write without wax into their contracts So they would make the guy sign, this is without wax? Oh yeah, it's without wax. So if it melted, he took it back and said, you said without wax. Here's my contract, give me my money back. Put simply, we're not to be of mixed substance that is hypocritical or duplicitous in our lifestyles. What we say that we are is what we should truly be. No wax. Everybody say no wax no wax and isn't it funny you get into some trial and tribulation and how many of you ever had wax melt in the trial in the heat of the trial and tribulation that's what trials and tribulation are for they purify us because guess what we all got wax you get into those trials and tribulations and it starts melting parts of you start kind of sinking and caving and you start grumbling and complaining you thought your faith was so strong before you know it here's this wax The good God, he comes and just scoops the wax away and heals the gash and makes you stronger. He doesn't want to give you back. That kind of honest living in God's sight will result in the next verse. Quote, verse 11, being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Now, fruits of righteousness. The word righteousness refers to doing simply what is right. That's the fruit of righteousness. You're doing what's right. Jesus went about everywhere. Jesus went about everywhere doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil. I love something in me is fed when I go just do good. Bless somebody, help somebody, pray for somebody, help somebody that can't do anything in return for me. Just go out there in the name of the Lord and do what Jesus did, it it feeds something in me. It, It blesses me. It edifies me. But here's what we do in our day. Instead of doing what is right, we ask ourselves this question. Is this course of action going to be popular? Or does it make me feel good? Because it's all about me, you know. Or is it going to benefit me? Because again, it's all about me, myself, and I. That's my Godhead. But the Christian must ask another question. Is this right? Is it right? Not popular, not beneficial, but is it right? And then you do what is right. Now, Paul first discussed the prisoner and his prayer. Now he focuses on the prisoner and his purpose. And this is where it's really going to get good, although it's already been good. Amen? Amen. Now, let's look at this. According to Paul, his imprisonment and ever-present chains were, say it with me, divinely planned. If I'm him, I don't come to that conclusion very easily. I'm locked up, I'm chained, my freedom is gone. This is of God. Verses 12 and 13, he says, I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me, now I want you to say this with me, the things which happened to me, talking about yourself, let's try it again. The things which happened to me, now, personalize it and read the rest with me. Have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. That's God's will for you. That the things which happen to you, if you trust Him and don't get bitter, will turn for the furtherance of the gospel. So that it has become evident, says Paul, to the whole palace. This is verse 13 to the whole palace guard and to all the rest, that my chains are in Christ. Even the lost have been able to see that these chains are in Christ and God was behind it. Now, Paul's sole goal in life was to make Christ known. That was the only thing he cared about, making Christ known. And he fully understood that Christ, now seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, he knew that Christ was in full, not partial, Full, not sometimes, full control. Do we know that? Do you know that? He's in full control? Look at me and smile. Do you you know that? Or frown if you don't believe it. Oh, there's some frowns. Lord, I got my work cut out for me tonight. Look at this now. Do you struggle to believe that he's in full control? I have. There's many times in my life I have struggled to believe that God was in full control. I want to blame the flesh. I want to blame people. I want to blame the devil. I want to blame me. And yes, people do things wrong. People people get in the way of what God wants to do. The devil does stick his split hoof in there a lot. But if you believe in sovereignty you know that no matter what man or devil do the will of god is ultimately going to prevail that's sovereignty if you went back 100 years and you read christian writings 100 years 150 years ago 200 years ago all the way back to the early church, if you read older Christian writings, they were filled with conviction and talk about and, 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 and proof of and mulling over and meditating on God's sovereignty. We've lost it. Now it's all, if you say it, you get it. If you don't say it, you don't get it. That doesn't acknowledge sovereignty. Got quiet right there. Some things you can say all day long, you're never going to get them. And some things you don't ever have to say a thing, you're still going to get them. Because God is sovereign. He doesn't jump when you say something. Paul believed that nothing happened by chance. All the varied, uh, varied threads of circumstance were being woven by him into a pattern that would result in God's eternal praise. God is sovereign. Can you say it with me? A truth that has been lost to a great many of God's children in our day. Sovereignty. Do you, do you know how much stress it takes off of you when you believe in sovereignty? Here's Paul in prison. He didn't do anything wrong, but he's in prison for it. Doing nothing wrong. Just for preaching Christ. Trying to help people. Now, a lot of people would be having nervous breakdowns. Calling for lawyers. Lawyers complaining, murmuring, getting bitter. But no, he said, if this is where I've ended up, I trust his sovereignty. One poet wrote, I love this, not till each loom is silent and the shuttles cease to fly shall God reveal the pattern and explain the reason why. The dark threads were as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver for the pattern which he planned. Isn't that nice? Don't you love that? As we so often say, when you don't understand God's hand, trust his heart. A lesser man would have questioned God's ways, fretted over his enforced inaction, and perhaps become embittered. Not Paul. He knew his chains were divinely planned and God made no mistakes. He knew God had not lost control. Now, I am not preaching here fatalism. I'm not saying that you don't fight spiritual battles. I'm not saying that you don't make decisions and take steps. I'm not saying you just lay there and say, well, let life happen to me because God's in charge. No. No. One of the greatest examples I know of in the Bible is the four lepers sitting outside the gates of Samaria. They're sitting outside the gates of Samaria, four leprous men. Inside the gates of Samaria, the whole population is dying of starvation because the Syrians have surrounded them and blocked their food from getting to them. And so they're day by day, week by week, dying, starving, They're they're turning to cannibalism. They're eating animals. They're eating each other. It's bad. It's grim. And outside the gates are these four lepers. Behind them is this terrible tragedy happening in the city. In front of them is the dreaded Syrian army. They're sitting there. Not only are they sitting there, but they're leprous. And one of them says, Why are we sitting here until we die? If we go in there, they're starving. If we go towards the Syrians, they're liable to take us and kill us. But I'm not going to sit here and just give up. So they said, let's go to the Syrians and see what they do with us. So they stand up and they begin walking towards the Syrians. And and watch, they made a decision just thinking, I'm going to walk towards the Syrians and, and see what happens. But God's sovereignty was overruling the whole thing. Because as they began to walk, God caused the Syrians to hear an army that wasn't there. And they fled, hearing thousands of horses' hoofbeats. They fled and left everything sitting there, food, riches, camels, everything. They couldn't have dreamed a better dream come true. They walked in and there's nothing there. It's a ghost town, but all the food you could want, everything. And they ran and told the people inside Samaria, and the whole city was delivered because of four lepers. Now watch this. They thought they were just making a decision. But above and beyond and overruling their simple decision was the sovereignty of God who had planned all along to deliver the people inside of Samaria. So they thought they were just making a decision but the sovereignty of God was overruling it all and that's the way sovereignty works. What can I preach on that? But I've got to finish this tonight. Because I, I, I know sovereignty is real. God is sovereign. Now Paul viewed his chains as a challenge rather than a problem. If he could not go, then he would turn to prayer and his pen. Thank God he did. A man of action like Paul would perhaps never have written as much as he did had he not been placed in solitude. The results of his chains that he said were of God are rich indeed. Watch this his letters to the Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, and Philemon were all penned in prison. Can you imagine not having Ephesians? Can you imagine not having Colossians? We wouldn't know about the armor of God. We wouldn't know about sovereignty as he talks about in Ephesians. I mean, you talk about rich, 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 but they were written because he was in prison second benefit a wide circle of people in rome including roman guards and members of the palace staff caesar's household were won to christ during his incarceration and third the church was greatly emboldened to preach the gospel without fear look what it says and many of the brethren of the lord have grown bold in christ through my chains look at all that happened because he ended up where he did and trusted sovereignty Let's stop here and ask ourselves a question in closing. If Paul could trust that God was in control, even while locked up in prison, can we trust the sovereignty of God in our own lives? Can you? Where in our life do we doubt that God's in charge tonight? Where do you where do you doubt that God's in charge? Some of you thinking, where's Mr. Wonderful? Where's Miss Wonderful? Uh, where's that better job? Why do I have these pains? What, What you know what? Yeah, there's some areas I don't trust. Well, now that we've identified the place, can we place our trust in God to bring glory to Himself in our situation? It was this positive, faith-filled attitude is how Paul was able to maintain a joyful heart. Joyful heart, even in trials and tribulation. May God help us do the same. Can we stand together? Next time, look what we're going to be on. How to handle the green-eyed monster. Jealousy. But I do want to pray with you right now. I want us to, I want to I've never given this invitation before. I'm not going to ask you to come down here but I do want us to cast those areas where we doubt he's in charge into the sovereign hands of God and let him give you peace. Can we do that? Lord Jesus right now Paul trusted in sovereignty and that's how he had peace and that's how he had joy. In that prison. And because he stayed free, Lord, we see that these incredible letters of heaven-sent revelation flowed from his pen. Roman guards in Caesar's household came to Christ through him. We see benefit after benefit. And so, Lord, right now, We cast, and I want you to fill in the blank. I cast, and you fill in the blank, the area where I am struggling to believe and trust and rest in your sovereignty. Give it to him. And now just say, Lord, I've cast it into your hands. Now, say, I cut the string. I'm not going to reel it back. I trust you. I want to go to the deeper places. The deeper places, Lord. Take a minute and pray. Let that burden go. Know the dreams of your heart. Let that burden go. Find all the secret places. The hidden. Place is Lord. Until there's nothing left to know, I want to go to the deeper place. I trust you with that person, places, that place, Lord. or that thing. To know the dreams of your heart, I you are the sovereign the God. Places, the you believe that he heard that? Give him a wave offering and I just lift your hands and say, Lord, thank you. You are the sovereign God. You will work on my behalf and will finish what you have begun. In Jesus' name. Amen. Give him a hand.